Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a pretty good episode here for you today. I'm gonna- Only pretty good? Pretty well. We I, always say awesome, usually. Well, I'm maybe I'm tempering it because you came in here when you got here today. I w- was thinking that you maybe had four or five, maybe six espressos on your way. Right. So I'm just trying to figure well, out. I got another like, one right here for those of us that are joining <laughs> us live. <laughs> so uh, what do we have coming? What's going on today? So really cool show. We're going to tap into the history of the Porsche 959. My love it and hate it. Porsche. It is. Yeah. And so you'll actually like this episode. Everyone knows a lot or like, you know, the headlines about the car, you know, right. the performance and everything else. And it was crazy and it was great. I'm going to dig into some of the more. Um, well, it was not quite as much of a Cinderella story. Exactly. As everybody thinks. So I'm and hoping to find out why. Yeah. So that sounds pretty 100%. cool. Um, anything new with you? Um, I got back from vacation just this week. I was out in Palm Springs, California. Um, saw a lot of not rusty cars. I, I, I did. I know that's kind of the disappointment is like, and it was really funny. So it was warmer out there, obviously, than here in Minnesota. But people were still up in their parkas and had like earmuffs on. And I'm sitting around there in shorts and a tank top. Like, right. what? What? Yeah. Well, that's pretty normal. So, yeah, I saw a few cool Porsches that I shared on Instagram. And I don't know, drove around in a really boring malaise uh, Nissan with a CVT. Oh, the CVT is bad. It's not great. I've never driven a CVT that oh, really? wasn't no I've driven oh, okay. I was saying, I've never driven a CVT that wasn't terrible. And here's what they do is they if for anybody that's not driven a CVT, right. they make it so when you drive one <laughs> It feels not like a CVT rather because what it is like is it's program in shift points that are fake. Right. But that defeats the purpose of having a CVT right, in the then beginning. It's not that much more efficient because basically you have two pulleys and a metal belt and it's right. almost like a snowmobile or a scooter. Exactly. So you you reach your optimal torque yep. and your RPMs and then it just holds it there and you continue to accelerate. And that's it is what's a, so weird. It doesn't feel like you're accelerating because you're used to the revs building as yeah. you accelerate. Yep. Here it's just like. And it's it's so <laughs> it. it's so disconcerting. It's not fun. It's a terrible experience. Yes. But here's the deal is they yeah. are a little bit more economical. I'm sure because they it, are. you know, if you're gonna accelerate, it keeps it in the power band. Yeah. And it doesn't rev all over the place. You don't need right. to come up to red line, blah, blah, blah. So it saves fuel. But then they just ruin it because the only way anybody can tolerate it is making it feel like a regular transmission. Yeah. So they it's just not ruin ideal. it to begin with. Not ideal. So um, I haven't done much other than dig my wife out of the snowbank. <laughs> well, you're tempting fate with your uh, Volkswagen. Why is that? Because you're trying to see when you're going to run out of the AdBlue right. exhaust. So what is that? Every 2,000 miles or so, you have to fill up the AdBlue, which everybody that listens to the podcast has heard me complain about this before. Right. It's basically uh, an exhaust additive. Yeah. It's, added it's to diesel. It. It's DEF. It's diesel exhaust fluid. It helps reduce there emissions. And the EPA forced Volkswagen to basically make it so you cannot drive the car. So it's sure. like a countdown. It starts out like in 500 miles, car will not start. Okay. In 400 miles. Now it's like every five miles, I'm down to 45 miles. <laughs> car will not start. So I bought some Blue Def and I threw it in okay. the trunk and I'm going to let it get to zero and see if it would really not. Could you imagine being on like a road trip somewhere and it just doesn't start? <laughs> well, I'm picturing even worse. You're on the freeway going, it hits zero. Boom. Car shuts down. Just, you're all That's done. It. You're done. That's it. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be that bad, but it's it's going to be. Yeah, but be it, I bet it won't let you start it again. I bet. But the question is, is like when I put it back in, it'll start, right? I don't have to like. Oh, good like point. A, you have to go to the dealer and get it like reset out or something or who knows what's what's going to happen. I, I am not sure. Well, we'll be waited. Is with bated breath to right. see what happens to you. Uh, before we get into the show, though, I have a really exciting announcement here. So we are announcing that we're partnering with a new sponsor 
Renline. I'm pretty excited about this. Uh, you know, I, I when I met these guys out at Rensport, they were super cool dudes, and it's it's they good really to have them are. on board. So, as most of you know, Renline designs performance parts for European cars, most notably Porsche. So, from interior accessories to full, like they do full monoball suspension setups, Renline really strives to create highest quality equipment. That's as functional as it is beautiful because it really is with as many holes as you need possible speed holes. <laughs> with as many speed holes. All of the speed they holes are amazingly engineered. Though. I wonder if it's like exponential speed holes, like the more products they design, they have to have even more <laughs> speed holes in the products that they're. Well, I'll tell you, over the past 20 years, Renline has developed over 6000 products to meet the needs of Porsche enthusiasts, both on the street and the track. So what really sets Renline apart, though, Chris, is they aren't just another distributor that all of their products are designed. Designed and engineered in-house right in Vermont. So made in the USA. I like that. Yep. Everything's designed, engineered right there. Most of their products are actually manufactured there as well. So you don't have to pay any of Trump's tariffs on it. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, regardless of how you may tease them, there's no doubt the products are extremely high quality. They are. They're proven by the fact that they actually guarantee every single product that they create. So with the sponsorship, be sure to check them out on renline.com and use the code overcrest2. So that's overcrest followed by the number two. Is there another overcrest? I, I actually don't know why they put it two, but overcrest with the number two, that'll get you 5% off your next order along with free shipping on orders over 250 bucks. That's cool. And it's actually the highest discount they offer outside of their big sales. So it's a great opportunity. Check cool. those guys out. We're really happy to have them on board. Yeah, it's great to have somebody that's, you know, really involved with the culture. We've had, ironically, the we get emails all the time about, hey, can we sponsor the podcast? Can we right. be part of the podcast? We just got one right before we came on the podcast, and right. it is, it's a boudoir photography studio Right. I mean, that's a good fit, right? I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. Is there like I'm going to pose kind of- naked on the hood of my car with them, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's what they're after, but I'm thinking maybe there could be some benefits. Like we could, you know, some, maybe we could see some housewives doing things, you know what I mean? No, I don't think we get to shoot the photos. They want to. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyways, moving on. Moving Should on. Should we get into our feature story here? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Let's uh, let's get into it. All right. This is the history of the 959. In 1982, the Federation Internale di Automobile introduced a new set of regulations for racing. They were meant as a replacement for both the previous Group 4, which was modified Grand Touring, and Group 5, which was the Touring Prototype class. Okay. So this new set of regulations had fewer restrictions on technology, design, and homologation requirements. You only had to have 200 cars now to get in the racing series. It was known simply as Group B. We all love Group B. What is this sound clip from? Just pure sounds of Group B is what it's all it's called. That sounds like a... That sounded like an Audi. That was an Audi. This is a Lancia. I kind of just want to let this go the entire time while I'm listening. (laughs) How about not? (laughs) So... Groupie. We all know Groupie led to some of the fastest, craziest, most insanely powerful race cars ever to exist. Right. And in fact, the cars were so ridiculous that the class was discontinued only four years later in 1986. And I'm sure we could do an entire month's worth of stories and episodes just on Group B, but that's not what this episode but, is but we sh- about. But we should but do we that. Should. Yeah, we should do tune that. Tune in later. We yeah, might do we'll that. Figure that one out. <laughs> Instead, it's about a small German manufacturer, of course, named Porsche, more specifically. 
the car named the Porsche 959. And now when you say small manufacturer, they kind of weren't they they weren't what the Porsche what they weren't what Porsche is today. No, you have to like a global like, powerhouse that has You have to remember they actually were kind of a small German company at the time. In terms of margin and who makes money on cars, Porsche's way up there, Ferrari's way up there, but it wasn't always that no, way. No, it wasn't. And as you'll learn as I go on here, they were in dire straits uh, later in in their production line. So when Porsche put the 959 into production, wait, I scrolled way too far. I don't know how that happened. Okay, so um, when Porsche put the 959 into production in 1987, it was hands down the most technologically advanced car in the world. Ever. It It was turbocharged. Then, like in some crazy alternate universe of Pimp My Ride, Exhibit showed up in Stuttgart, Chris. <laughs> and he was like, yo, dog, I heard you like turbos. So we turbocharged your turbocharger. Right. That's right. The 959 was sequentially twin turbocharged. Yep. It made 450 horsepower. It did zero to 60 in 3.6 seconds. It was damn near able to break the 200 mile per hour mark. But it did just, 196. But just couldn't 196. Get there. Really close, though. And How many I, times do you think they tried? Oh, you have to imagine all day. Like, do you think they like smear it with like Vaseline? <laughs> like, like all the different things like they they're pr- taping down the door. Handles. I bet they did everything to try and get that thing like and they lo- probably lowered it. They probably adjusted yeah. the aerodynamics. They're like, how inflate the tires a little bit more? But they think they could have just turned the boost up a little bit. True. Right? Let's just turn the boost up. But they are German. They were, oh, oh this is not precise. going to be as yes, reliable. Exactly. If we, right. So 196 miles per hour, still extremely impressive. It was the fastest car when it launched for a minute. For a minute. We'll get yeah. back to it. It had computer-controlled variable all-wheel drive. It had driver-adjustable ride height as well as driver-adjustable suspension. It had driver-selectable torque split. It had hollow-spoked magnesium wheels, tire pressure monitoring, anti-lock brakes, a six-speed gearbox. It's nuts. It had crazy. everything. It, it had literally everything. had everything. So many of these technologies are still impressive today. But well, a lot, were, of them are, a lot of them are considered standard, like a, ABS. Yes, and, but I mean, sequential turbocharging, adjustable ride height, well, driver-selectable yeah. torque split. I mean, you have to say, like, some of these are still like, oh, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that would be great to ha- like, have. 30 a, years ago, it was unheard bonkers. Of. Right, unheard of. So also keep in mind, Porsche was, a, as we mentioned, relatively small car company at the time. And they decided to put them all in the same car. At the same time. So this is probably a lot of things that they were working on for just the regular 911 and the 944 and the 951 and all those other things. And they're like, hey, we're working on all these things. And then all these Germans got in a room and were like, hey, let's, <laughs> let's do it all at the let's, same time. Let's do on the same car. I don't, so, I'm not sure. It was I, I'm not sure it was exactly like there was some impetus of why the 959 was built. I think we're probably going to yes, get there. So it was ridiculously ambitious, though, is what I was getting at with that laundry list of accomplishments. Right. And despite what you may think or know, I'll argue it was also kind of a ridiculous mess verging on a failure. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm going to avoid some of the minutiae of the 959 because let's be honest, people know the car. Right. They've also had the poster on their wall or read about it or something else. So what I'll get into is kind of the production and the production hell that it went through. So hot on the heels of this crazy new series called Group B, Porsche planned to enter its own car in the field to capitalize on the excitement, of course. And on paper, it really should have been relatively easy to do. It already had a chassis that was proven in racing with the 911. And as luck would have it, they had already been working on a revolutionary new design for the bodywork. 
You see, in 1982, Porsche conducted extensive wind tunnel testing on an experimental chassis known as Project C-29, which I think is a really cool project name. Super top secret. C-29. So with all this development, they were able to modify the classic 911's aerodynamics to achieve a low coefficient of drag value of only 0.31. And okay, so what do we know what that is compared to anything I else? I should have looked up if that's really good. It's good. For like, 911. Like, what's a Prius? <laughs> you know, those are pretty aerodynamic. Those are pretty slippery, yeah. but they're also like 40 or 50 years newer. Right. In addition, they were able to pair this low drag, though, with optimal downforce. The hallmark features of this C29 design included the integrated rear wing and a smooth transition from windshield to A-pillar, as well as a full composite underbody cover. Mm-hmm. These are kind of details you might recognize in the 959. Right. So in addition to this aerodynamics, Porsche already had ample experience with turbocharging and engine development, sourcing the engine's water-cooled heads from its Le Mans-winning race car, the 962. So in essence, the pieces were already there. This should be easy, right? Right. All just, Porsche, just pop it all together, right. build the car, get some homogulation going on, and let's do this. Literally all they had to do to be competitive was integrate all-wheel drive. And in theory, the 911 was easily adapted for that as well. Since the 911 is rear-engined, as we know, all that was needed was an output shaft from the front of the transmission to a diff up front by the wheels. Easy. Well, it is basically the same method that made similar systems quickly adapted on the cars like the Toyota Tercel and the Audi Quattro. So, again, it should be relatively straightforward to bring a 911 to Group B. The problem, however, is that Porsche wasn't interested and merely developing an all-wheel drive car. Porsche wanted to make an all-wheel drive car with impeccable steering, unprecedented handling, stability at speed, along with unparalleled comfort and luxury. This wouldn't be another homologation special. It was a full-fledged production model. So I didn't put this in the notes, but you have to remember, like the Lancia Delta S4 and the Audi S1, if you look at those homologation cars, they're almost like kit cars. Like, they weren't fully finished and the most luxurious cars around. Right. They just made 200 of them, slapped them together so that they could go racing. And that's not Porsche's that's philosophy That's not what they do at that's, all. It's not very German. Right. So, Porsche unveiled its concept at the 1983 Frankfurt Motor Show, aptly named the Group B Concept. And in what year is this? This is 83. So, in 1983, that's... Are we getting like kind of in the in the realm of the nine five three? I think the in nineteen eighty three the nine five three must have been in development. It yeah yeah it was kind of in tandem. So that my next paragraph literally is about the nine five three here. So but let's go in order. Then eight then in nineteen eighty three the Group B concept was released, and as soon as the show car debuted, people were inundating Porsche with orders. Internal documents show that Porsche planned to meet its homologation requirements of two hundred road cars. By July 1st, 1985. So in 1983, they're saying, guys, we got this. It's only two years out. Here's our prototype car. It's great. In fact, we're going to include regular road cars, stripped out race-ready sport models, and a leather-lined comfort model as well. Yeah. So I actually found copy from the brochure from 1983. Okay. Quote, the house Porsche prepares 200 street-proven 959 future cars. The 959 is an exclusive high-performance car with extravagant technology. 
Countless elements are carried over directly from racing. With the 959, high-value materials are processed in the highest quantity, quality, as is in Zuffenhausen standard. It is tested for everyday usability to the most strenuous standards. The 959 opens up an as-yet-unknown level of power and secure handling. It is tailored to the engaged and savvy expert who wishes to have say in the development of the sports car itself. Okay, so they're saying you will be a part of history if you buy this car. Basically. Okay. Like, that's that's selling it hard. Now, any history of the 959 would be remiss without mention of, as you said, the 953. Right. So the 953 was basically a high-profile test bed for the 959's proposed four-wheel drive system. And what better way to test something than to go racing? Which they did. So it was dubbed the 911 4x4. It was the first wave of Porsche's massive and now infamous assault on the Dakar Rally. This is, of course, the Paris to Dakar Rally. Le Mans racing legend and reigning Dakar winner Jackie Ix was the main driver. And it was he who brought the iconic Rothsman sponsorship to the project, which I didn't know. Ix set more fastest stage times than anyone else, despite an accident near the beginning stage when a wheel jack broke free and shorted out the wiring. The resultant fire meant they had to wait for the service, quote, barge, which I assume is just the support truck. Right. For whatever reason, they call it the, the service barge. So they had to wait for this thing to catch up with them. So they basically started racing again from the last place in this race. Right. The 953 fought back the entire way across the Sahara, then west through the Ivory Coast, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Marturana to get up to the incredible third place within figurative sight of the finish line. They can taste it. Unfortunately, on that last stage, before they got to Senegal, they broke a drive shaft and dropped back to sixth place. But it's still extremely impressive. The 953 cars were basically stock 911s with a roll cage, lowered uh, compression in the engine to run on crappy fuel that they have in Africa, and the aforementioned four-wheel drive system. Right. I did find a fun fact that I thought was worth sharing. So as a way to alter the handling of the car, the driver could transfer fuel between the primary tank up in the front and an auxiliary tank mounted behind the driver, effectively changing the front to rear weight balance of the car. That's a lot of control. That is. smart, yeah. But I can't imagine, is that electric pump right there, or do you have the co-pilot sitting there with a hand crank going? No, No, there's got to be some sort of electric pump that sits there and pumps the... I had never heard that, though. I thought that was really cool. All right, so then... So not only can you change the... Uh, the brake bias, but you can change right. the, the weight of the, the actual fuel, weight. change where the fuel is in the yeah. car. That's pretty cool. Which I imagine as you're sucking down fuel, you're like, oh, we better switch back to the front tank. Or, you know, I always did that with my grandpa's like F-150. Oh, had you two had the tanks. dual tank F-150. Dual tanks, oh, yeah. And I'd be like, oh, I'm almost out of gas. And you hit the switch and the thing would go back to full <laughs> like, on. The, full oh, gas, yeah, baby. We're ready to go. <laughs> it was always pretty cool. All right. Changing scenes, Chris. 1986, Finnish rally driver Henry Tovian, who had also actually had time competing in a 953, was racing at Tour de Corsa, a Group B event on the very twisty mountain roads around the French island of Corsica. Before the second leg of the event, he was quoted, Today, we have driven more than the whole distance of the Thousand Lakes finish rally. After four hours of driving, it's hard to keep up with the speed. So, with a modern car like this, it's just impossible to race here. It's physically exhausting, and the brain can't keep 
up. So the, that's kind of always my my question when you have these guys that are out doing these parry to car. I mean, beyond the car, it's a real test of you know these guys get into these F one cars, and obviously that's a test with the G forces. So but we, you're just you're basically being shaken. So this is actually back to Group B race. I switched scenes. Uh, so this isn't the Paris. Okay, I, that's just what I was thinking. No, about. yeah, eighty six. This is a Finnish rally driver at the Tour de Course. Well, so. even more so, everything's happening so fast exactly. when you're doing Group B. It's and like, now, now, trees, now, 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 now. Yeah. Not the desert. Right. Well, at least at least you've got somebody telling you that there's a you know a, a nine ahead. left or a three over crest. Exactly. Huh? 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 Yeah, yeah. Over crest, over yeah. crest. That's where that came from. So as it turns out, those would be his last words. At the seventh kilometer of the stage, Trivian's Lancia went off the side of the road at a tight left corner with no guardrail. The car plunged down a ravine and crashed on its roof. The aluminum fuel tank underneath the driver's seat was ruptured by the trees and exploded. Henry Toivonen and the supercars might have been created for each other. Together, on May the 2nd, 1986, they died. Well, that's pretty dark, Jake. <laughs> yup. So it was the last in a line of deaths stemming from a racing series that seemed too violent to continue. Within hours of that crash, the FIA banned any further Group B competition. And so it was that Porsche was left developing a car without a series to race it in. In 1985, Porsche's parasitic car entry featured all of the 959's chassis work and electronics, but all cars it entered failed to finish. Midway through the racing season, Porsche then finally fitted turbos on two of its desert racing cars, the first of which burned down. Finally, in 1986, the 959, as was meant to be, was entered in the Dakar Rally, taking first, second, and sixth. That sounds impressive. It does. It was ahead of two Mitsubishis and a Lada, <laughs> if that gives you any sense of competition here, Chris. <laughs> so, so because Porsche was set on producing a full-fledged luxury supercar, production still hadn't started. And this is why the cars could only contest rallies that permitted non-homologation vehicles. And this was also why the racing version of the 959, dubbed the 961, tackled Le Mans in 1986 and 87 in a prototype class and even contested a single round of the IMSA championship at Daytona Speedway in Florida. Now, for me, the Porsche 961 um, is actually a really good looking car. It's better than the um, 959. Uh, I think so, too. I'm, I'm trying to pull one up for everybody to sure. see here on the live stream. But So I only included the one race at Daytona to tie it into last week's history episode. So if you haven't checked that out, please do. So ultimately, Porsche's own ambition hampered the 959. The biggest problems were fitting all of these advanced systems, as I said, on a single car and developing all the digital controls which basically was uncharted territory at the time. 959 test engineer and driver Dieter Rashinsen, there I got it, had this to stay. <laughs> this isn't as good as last week with Money Penny. These, these, these German Rashinsen. names are something else. <laughs> the measuring and setting of parameters were not at the time made with simple programming on a laptop. The programs were saved on an EEPROM, which stood for Erasable Programmable Read-Only Memory. This was cast in synthetic resin for production use. Any changes 
made to the settings were only possible by completely changing out the entire control unit. Quote, the work involved in the measurement of electronics was enormous. Rochison recounted. The equipment needed for this took up the passenger compartment and was very heavy. Plus, there was a measuring device for the steering wheel with which we could record steering angle and rotational velocity of the steering torque. It was difficult to see the instruments, though, through the large steering wheel hub and many cables. So I think they used to do some crazy testing back in like the... Uh the um the nine five or the nine sixty two as okay. well like they would have I can't remember I think I can't remember what car it was um that was driven but someone was like almost running over a cyclist as they were trying because they're trying to focus on like the computer that's sitting on the side but they're trying to also drive the car and yeah we have a photo in our slideshow where we'll show where it's like the testing equipment literally takes up all of the passenger seat there's no visibility to your right or in front of you meanwhile you can't see your gauges because there's this giant hub in front of the steering wheel right so the car was slated for testing at the Nürburgring in 1986 with Walter Roll behind the wheel. After 10 laps, he pulled into the pits. There, he shared his thoughts with the inquisitive technicians and engineers on the performance of the 959. Turn-in, power distribution, handling, braking, etc. The technicians then removed all the rudimentary ECUs and replaced it with another pre-programmed EEPROM containing different parameters. Roll then went back out on the racetrack, turned another 10 laps, came back into the pits, and again gave an accurate report of his findings. And so it went on all day, changing out different settings on the car. Just over and over and over. However, cramming all that testing gear into a small 911 chassis meant it also liked to catch fire. <laughs> Rochison recounts developing the car's analog brake system. The 959 wasn't the first car with ABS, but never before had anyone developed ABS for a car that went so fast or weighed so much. Quote, well, how much did they weigh? I don't have that in front of me, Chris. <laughs> That's all right. I'll find it. Quote, the engineers found themselves in territory that was completely unfamiliar to them. 3,000 pounds, 3,200 pounds, give or take. It weighed so much. For, like, <laughs> for the time? That yeah. is, that's a, now, or, with, now with the ad, you know, advent of airbags and right. couple zones and everything else, you know, that's, that's not That's like that a much, featherweight. So, yeah. Exactly. At braking system tests on the Italian high-speed track at Nardo, for instance, the brakes would suddenly become extremely hot, and the car would sometimes jump two meters to the left or right. The problem was that we couldn't really simulate this fault. Sometimes the car would break to the left, sometimes the right. It behaved like a rabbit zigzagging across the road. The other problem was with how tightly everything was packed inside its small frame. So you got to think about this, Chris. This is basically the same structure as our early cars with all of this extra technology packed into it. Right. The book Birth of a Legend explains. Obviously, the confined conditions combined with the high-temperature technology, the two turbochargers alone, radiated up to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit, required many additional hours of work until the team finally managed to get the heat balance under control. Our friend Dieter Roschheisen shares another anecdote. Quote, At one of the many drives, a colleague of mine looked in the rearview mirror and saw that the car had begun to burn. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't stop, but calmly kept driving at 180 kilometers an hour for several more kilometers in order to get within the range of our five fire extinguishers. And he succeeded. Had he waited for the fire department to reach him at the spot where the car caught fire, it would have been too late. So after all this extraneous testing, the car finally went on sale in 1987. The car was, as we know today, an absolute masterpiece of engineering. 
before you get too far away from the testing, I want I was when I was at Rensport, I talked to Derek Bell about testing cars. Okay. And I was trying to pull the information out of my brain as we were talking, <laughs> but I I have it here because I wrote it down. Um, Bell was talking about the develop developing the long tail 917 at Hockenheim on the fly with Norbert Singer. He said, my very last lap, it's always the last one. It was 10 to 5. It was dark. How do you remember it was 10 to 5? <laughs> it was exactly 4.50 in the afternoon. As I went around the east curve, I came around on, the, on a long left-hander, full flat to the floor. All of a sudden, I saw a cyclist going across the road. I didn't pick him up terribly well. It was foggy. This bloke didn't pick up much either. All I remember seeing as I went up there at 160 or 170 miles per hour was this terrified look on his face as he looked left and saw this 917 screaming out of the fog. I remember seeing this bloke suddenly accelerate and pedal like hell. <laughs> okay, if you're going that fast, how can you make out the expression on his face is my question. I think that these guys are far more relaxed. You're imagining if you... We're in a 917 or a 959 True. test driving. It. This is Derek Bell. So, he, I mean, he's done this before. He, this is a guy who remembers 50 years later exactly what it was time ten, it, was. it was. 10 to 5. <laughs> it was 10 to 5 when I saw the whites of that guy's eyes. No kidding. Yeah. Craziness. So, yeah, like all this testing, the car finally went on sale in 1987. The car was, as I said, a masterpiece of engineering, right? It was great. Yeah, it was. Or but <laughs> there was there's a little problem, Chris. You see, 1987 also saw the release of the Ferrari of 40. Correct. It was faster, actually breaking the 200 mile per hour barrier and devoid of almost all of the heavy, complicated computer controlled systems that the 959 had. The Ferrari was lighter and therefore much more exciting. Car Magazine had this to say about the 959 when it was released. In its determination to make the world's greatest road machine, Porsche has forgotten to involve the bloke behind the wheel. Yeah, that's kind of the thing that you say <laughs> like with this is this car was like in that amazing really is what Porsche was going for, though. For better or worse, they wanted an everyday crazy supercar. Right. But but it's it still not out to be. It's like it's like being a watchmaker versus like a boxer. You know, the watchmaker I don't might don't understand that analogy. Just think of like the talent that it takes to like learn how to like take apart watches and do different things. Okay. And, and a boxer, you just have to hit people and be hit. I think there's talent there, too, though. Yeah, but like I could probably box. I can't fix any watches. I might not be very good at it. I don't think you could compete to either a professional watchmaker or a professional <laughs> boxer, though. That's probably true. But if you think you can, I would love to see I, it. I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying that the brutality of an F40 is a lot more interesting. It, it really is. And that's than, what it comes down than to. Than the fine engineering and what basically watchmaking skills of the Germans yes. with the 959. Exactly. The prior year, Porsche CEO Schultz told the New York Times that, quote, our customers are entrepreneurs. It's the kind of product that thrives in a free society. We don't sell many Porsches in Russia. And being that kind of a product, its home is in the United States. But Porsche didn't sell the 959 in America. Porsche didn't certify the low-volume 959 for sale in the U.S. because the company, quote, refused to provide the United States Department of Transportation with the four complete 959s they needed for crash testing. Just, I would have trouble with that, too. If you put that much effort into a car and it's going to be an expensive car and supercar, these guys must struggle, like, running the thing into the wall. Just, you have to destroy the car. Well, yeah, I don't know if that was a good decision at the time. 
Bruce Canepa, the famed American racing driver, purchased a 959 at the time in the U.S. and managed to orchestrate a legal petition along with Bill Gates and Paul Allen, founders of Microsoft and car aficionados both, that took until 1999 for President Clinton to sign into law. It was the new show and display rule that allowed the 959 to physically enter the country, even though American examples would still have to meet contemporary emission standards. What's incredible is that you can't even bring it here and then park it in your living room. No. You cannot. It cannot be here. When Bruce bought one, it literally stayed in port for 13 years. They should have just driven it across the border of Mexico. <laughs> yeah, that would have been easier. Like, that would have been much easier. I wonder if there's any stories of guys that had them anyway. I would love to know if there's some rich guy out there. Bruce would be the guy who would know yeah, that Yeah, I bet story. he might know that. I'll have, to, I'll have to ask him. So after all this, it's widely understood that Porsche still lost money on every single 959 it made. Quote, the 959 is probably the most expensive promotional giveaway that Porsche ever offered its customers. This is from Helmut Boat, R&D chief of Porsche. Each car cost Porsche around 1 million Deutschmarks to develop and produce. But Porsche didn't have the stomach to sell the 959 for more than what it considered an already staggering 420,000 Deutschmark. As an aside, though, they clearly could have increased the price as the cars that sold secondhand immediately went for much, much, much more. Right. What was the MSRP? Do we know what they were selling for? Uh, 420,000 Deutschmarks, which I forget worked out to the U.S. $225,000. Yeah, there yeah. you go. So, I mean, that is a lot back in 87. Right. But they're still losing money in every single one. Right. But as such, a major drain on the company's financial financially, Porsche stopped production early in 1988. So they officially only sold them for two years. It's just a crazy story. Here's what they sounded like. I know. Again, going back to like your story about that Ford compared to it. I don't know. That's, it's so not, that's that's it's five, muffled. That's five hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars in today's valuation of, with inflation it's, it's up there so while this is all fairly common knowledge for diehard porsche fans here's something that might not be porsche had enough extra parts left over after the car's run that it was able to restart 959 production in 1992 to build a limited number of examples did you know that no according to to bruce cap i can't Canapa, sorry. There are thought to be six of the 1992 Porsche 959s, and the story behind them is really quite fascinating. Quote, all those cars were purchased by a single person for himself and for one of his friends. <laughs> the gentleman that bought them was from Macaw, and the other gentleman was from Hong Kong. Canapa himself has seen a few of these later year 959s as they go to expert on 959s that he is. Do we know what's different about these cars? There's what, like literally nothing different about them. You know what's different about them? The guy that asked for these, he paid twice as much for each one of them as Porsche was asking in 87. Okay, good for him, I guess. That's what you do. And it was because they had planned to sell them in the U.S. but didn't want to give the four away to GOT that they had these extra chassis laying around, basically. So what is the... Just crash the car. I know. They would have made so much more money by just letting four of them go. Just crash it. So, uh, Canapa himself, his company, Sport Canapa, offers an incredibly comprehensive 4,000-plus-hour restoration for these cars today. In addition, each car gets Canapa's Gen 3 performance upgrade, which boosts the 959's flat six from the standard 450 horsepower to 763. Pretty serious cars. It really, really, really are. So, it's when I look at the specs of these cars, it almost seems like this is the way that it should have been 
from the factory. Oh, you're talking what Canaba does? Yeah. Agreed. Is, I mean, this is the way that it should have been, what they've done. He was interviewed when this first started uh, coming out, and they were like, oh, well, what do you have to do with the engine? You know, this must be a lot of work to go through it. And he's like, yeah, we, of course, do rebuild the engine, but we really don't have to do anything. Because keep in mind, these engines were based off the 962 Le Mans racer. Right. So they can handle they 850 can handle some pretty horsepower. Serious, is what I read. Pretty serious power, but they also do they do some stuff with the interior and with the colors and other stuff like that. Exactly. What, I think they're. What? How much do they cost? Uh, a lot. I didn't. It's like, a, it. it's like a million dollars or, or something. I don't is it? And yeah. then uh, just getting a nine five nine is one to two million dollars. Getting place. the nine five nine is a million, and then I think it was like six hundred thousand or something. Uh, the suspension is actually heavily revised as well. It's based on seven hundred fifty thousand dollars plus the cost of the plus car. the cost of the car. There you go. Um, it's based on the dual coilover setup of the nine five nine Sport, which is one of the rarer like additions of the nine five nine. And then they build them with modern dampeners and, right. and everything else. And so Porsche's tumultuous production and history of the 959 supercar kind of lives on and evolves with that, just as I imagine Porsche would have seen fit. So my question is, how? what's the comparison between like a 918 and the right. 959? Because the it's 918, similar, isn't it, it really is. Because if you look at the way the 918 came out and really kind of just like Lay the smack down on everything, right? For a minute. For a minute. <laughs> for a minute. And then like Mc, McLaren came out and like the ate P1, their lunch and, yep. the, and the LaFerrari and all these other yep. cars came out and just just ate their lunch all together. Just done. But someone had to make the first go at it. Really, right. right? And so they say, I mean, when you look at the groundwork that the 959 laid down for Porsche, yes, it wasn't a great business case or a great success on the racetrack. But when you look at what it led to in some of these other cars and 993 and the twin turbo and stuff like that, it's like it really was iconic. It was. It truly was. So hopefully that was interesting for you. Maybe you learned something. I, I thought it was really cool. Right. Um, I did, too. I thought it was a good story. I think there's I really liked him to know about this guy that bought these other cars. I know the Maybe. six 1992 yeah. 959s. So uh, let's get into a little bit of news. But before we do, I want to remind everybody to head over to patreon.com slash overcrest. If you're watching us live on Facebook today, you've seen that we have a pretty nice setup now with with some slideshows and Jake and I just looking at each other. Um, if you'd like to see uh, see us do the podcast live, um, you can see it on Facebook. Uh, when we do it. But if you're a Patreon member, you can go and see it anytime. That's where the archive of that is. Plus, you get exclusive content, T-shirts, stuff like that. So support the show and spread the word. If you like the podcast, your friends will, too. Um, yeah, we we, lo we love that you do that. And I hear people doing that all the time. Like, hey, I told all my buddies, all my guys at the shop, we listen to the podcast. And yeah, take us on really, Facebook, really, really take nice. us on Instagram. We'd love to hear it from that. For sure. So let's get into some news here, Chris. I know you were scouring the web here. Yes. Yeah, so um, the, uh, the my favorite story of the week is the uh, from our friends over at Mode Authority. It's the California bill that proposes America's own Autobahn on certain local highways. So what does that mean for us? What does it sound like? It means you will have a. Yeah, but local highways. So. OK, so this is in California. Um, the news comes from local CBS News affiliate CBS 13, which reported Monday that a new bill announced in the state legislature by Republican Senator John Morlock would require the Department of Transportation to build two additional lanes 
north and southbound on both highways. I think Highway 5 is one of them. Okay. Um, no speed limits would be present on the on the lanes, while the existing lanes would mean uh, would be capped at 65. That is a terrible miles. idea. <laughs> it, it, really, it is a really terrible it, idea. It as much as I real. love that, let me tell you why. You have one lane right next to you where cars are going to going like 100 miles an hour faster than the next lane. Here's the thing is that's a lot of the way that it is in Germany. There are people like booking. Okay, we have, don't you have dri- the discipline. Have you driven on the Autobahn? I have not. Okay, so you are dri- driving over in your little right lane like you're supposed to. Sure. And you cars go by, you're like, wow. I mean, <laughs> they are just gone and you can feel it. I mean, they're gone. Okay. But the reason that it works in Germany, because you're going maybe 75 or 80, right? And your rental okay. Mercedes A-Class, and that's all the faster it would go. <laughs> Everybody in Germany isn't driving 140 miles an hour. Right. Most, a lot of the cars, the hatchbacks, little trucks, they don't, they can't go that fast. Right. But the reason that it works is the discipline. Exactly. Americans, there's no way they can handle the responsibility of it. All I can see is some guy in his blazer doing 100 miles an hour while he's on Instagram or texting somebody and I then know. like just creaming somebody. There's no way that it would ever. Or uh, Ruth over there in the lane next to you is putting on her makeup in a rearview mirror. The discipline is not there. Plus, you're going to have dudes with Teslas thinking, well, I'm going to go in this lane and I'm going to go 90. And then they're not paying attention yep. as they're autopiloted <laughs> at 90 miles per hour. It's just it's um, I don't I don't understand. I don't know how you keep it from being clogged up with idiots that want to drive. Let's say the speed limit 65 and you're going to drive in the Autobahn lane. Right. I'm going to drive 80. How do you get that guy out of your way? He's not paying attention. Exactly. You know, he's reading the latest news or whatever that F people do. Well, then you're going to have people like pulling out in front of you when you're doing 150. Here's the thing. Here's how the only ways that this can happen is you Mm -hmm. are going to need to mandate additional training. Okay. And you're going to do you're going to have much better driver education. Now, this is something that I've thought about in the past is having certain lanes that are available to people that hold a license to be able to operate a vehicle and right. your vehicle has been inspected to be able to safely operate in those lanes. So it's voluntary. Yep. You know, it's almost like back in the day when, you know, you would play Gran Turismo and you could go through all the different licenses. Sure. You could get up into the S and pretty soon you're doing it 150 times before you finally get your your S license in Gran yeah. Turismo. This is almost the same thing. You have to be able to be aware of the consequences of what goes wrong when you're going that fast, but you also have to be a responsible enough driver and the rules have to be so strict. Our rules here are not strict enough for any of this. That's true. And I, while I like that idea and I agree with it, I also compare it to other things that we do have additional training for and other privileges. Have you ever gone to a concealed carry permit class? Yes. There are still a lot of idiots out there that have those. There are. So I don't know what the solution is. I I don't think you do this. <laughs> I think that's the solution that you have. So I yeah, think special I licensing is, is a way to do it. But okay. So what do you think the number one? Did you look? Did you peek? You peeked. I did. You but ask bastard. me anyways. Ask me anyways, because I'll tell you what I thought. Okay. So I was going to ask you what you thought was the most popular enthusiast vehicle in the country for sales. And I'll give everybody like five seconds to think about it. You know, so what do you think is the number one enthusiast enthusiast vehicle? vehicle. So So my mind immediately, I'm going to read off some sales numbers. Okay. Okay. So European sports cars, such as the answer after I give these (laughs) Um, European sports cars, such as the TT SLC F type 718 uh, came in, whatever eight series Alfa Romeo 4C sold 11,287 premium total total all the European sports cars premium sports cars. Um, supercars that report sales like the NSX and Ford GT sold 18,188. 
This seems a little weird now that I read these statistics. Um, every other sports car, such as the 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 Nissan 370, the BRZ, the Buick Cascada. It's I'm sorry, what? The Buick Cascada? That's a sports car? Who wrote this article? <laughs> They'll sold 123,041. Okay. So mm-hmm. this vehicle sold 240,000 units in the United States. What did you think it was? My mind immediately went to like a Mustang. The Mustang. Sure. Totally not even close. I know. It is the Jeep Wrangler. Which I guess when you say enthusiast vehicle in a broad sense, maybe. I would think that's an enthusiast vehicle, is it not? What about rental cars? There are so many rental Wranglers out there. That's because they're pr- probably, I have never driven one. I've gone to the dealership really? and been like, I've poked them and been like, this is, <laughs> this is junk. <laughs> like you grab like knobs and switches and stuff and they're like, they're flexing and bending like it's made out of like Bakelite that's been sitting around for 50 years. Uh-huh. None of it feels good to me, but I don't think they care. Um, When you look up Jeek Wrangler versus in Google, okay. like you can, you know, you can type something in Google and it gives and you it autofills. It autofills. When you sure. type Jeep Wrangler versus, yeah, the top results are versus Grand Cherokee or versus Rubicon, and way down on the list is versus Forerunner. Okay, there's nobody else that's really doing what the Jeep Wrangler does. So for the people that want that, I think that must be why. I would also argue the people that are buying a Wrangler, that's such a niche thing because if apparently it's, not if you've sold two hundred and fifty thousand of them no you're right not niche but i i don't know i'm just com- thinking so back in the day it was hate it was the hummer h3 versus <laughs> the wrangler versus the toyota fj those were all right. in that the toyota same FJ, market the, the right? h3 and the, those was, were what it was comparing to yeah but the, I agree the h3 not the was same. not even as capable as a wrangler yeah probably not no not even close okay because anything that's like an h3 uh-huh. is a fake truck <laughs> Except when it has a truck bed. No. Yeah. No. 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 All right. Well, anyway, so I just wanted to like. I don't know what the takeaway is there. There's no takeaway there. It's just like I was really surprised that it wasn't like a Mustang or a Camaro or something like that. I'd like to see the numbers. It is the it is the Wrangler, which is which is just crazy. All right. So I want to give Tesla some crap. But before I do, Uh I want to uh, read a story that's good. Something Tesla did. So this is positive. This, This is positive. This is actually my favorite thing that Tesla has ever done. Okay. With the latest over-the-air update, Tesla has rolled out a couple of very useful features. Some were supposed to, some were surprised and took automakers until 2019 to develop. These features use the various existing sensors and cameras, blah, blah, blah. The first mm-hmm. is dog mode. Okay. The feature uses automatic sensors to maintain a comfortable temperature for pets inside the vehicle when you have to run errands, such as inside a grocery store, while also displaying a message in giant letters on the screen to passersby who might be concerned for pets left in the car. Because obviously the car's not running, right? It's not not idling away. Like you walk in, you're at the grocery store, wherever some guy's got his little dog in there, but the car's running. You're like, ah, little dog. His dog goes okay. He's fine. Tesla's just sitting there and the dog looks like it's baking a lot. Back in 2016, Tesla already offered a cabin overheat protection feature, a more basic version of automatic climate control for when the car is turned off. Dog mode is the upgrade, offering more user-adjustable settings. Of course, this system is not a replacement for common sense or local laws, especially when it comes to leaving children in the car, which is (laughs) inevitable. Of of course, they're going to use dog mode for their kids. They're going to use dog mode for their kids, of course. When you said dog mode, my mind went somewhere completely different. I didn't know if it was going to like you you hit the horn and it barks at you or something. That sounds like or something Tesla would the, do. Right. The second feature is sentry mode. 
Okay. This will activate exterior cameras if it detects people near the vehicle and will display a message on the central screen notifying anyone who might be looking inside the vehicle that the car is using cameras to record them. That's kind of cool. In case someone actually breaks a window, the alarm will activate and the car will also blare music at the maximum volume setting. Wait, what music? Can you I, program I, the music? I don't know. That would be kind of funny. Um, <laughs> drivers will need to manually activate sentry mode each time before leaving the car and plug in a USB drive onto which the car will upload the video. I don't know what oh, that means. Oh, because it records the video. Oh, it does. It records it to your thumb it drive. It should send it to your phone. Why this, can't it send it to your phone? I, this, Wouldn't that be cool? Tesla's not as cutting edge as you think it might be. They've got dog mode and sentry mode. Oh, but come they just, on. They have the technology for that. Send it to my phone if someone like bumps into the car or something. All right. So less cool um, okay. is uh, Tesla loses their consumer reports recommended rating over reliability issues. Right. So Consumer Reports basically has like either this car is recommended or it's not. Right. So this is Tesla a car was always recommended. It recommended as a would buy. Um, owners re are reporting problems with paint, trim and electronics in a new customer reports survey. Hmm. Re reliability has been a weak spot for Tesla. According to our survey results, problems with the suspension, especially with the 2017 model year, have been an issue for the Model S luxury sedan, while hardware problems, especially concerning its unique Falcon wing doors, have plagued the Model X. Neither <laughs> is currently recommended by Consumer Reports either. And now our latest survey data has serviced numerous problems reported by Model 3 owners as well, which is why Consumer Reports removed its recommendation for the vehicle. Like, I guess the screens go crazy and like glass we, is I mean, just breaking. Yeah, is we've heard breaking. about this. Yep, so it's been it's been removed. Um, however, mm -hmm. Tesla currently holds the top spot on Consumer Reports' list of brands that satisfy their owners most based <laughs> on their new vehicle lineup. Now, my question is, it, would anybody that's driving a Toyota, Volkswagen, Honda, whatever, would they be okay with any of this? No, but here's this is this is such an interesting kind of phenomenon, and it's the same with Saab owners back in the day. Really, I'll tell you why. So I owned a Saab nine three for a while, and I would remember you consider yourself a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> of course I am. I'm the greatest person ever, Chris. Yeah. All right. That's so, the type of people that buy a sob. But they're also extremely apologetic for the sob because I remember I was in a, a like a car wash or something the other day or not the other day when I had my sob and my wife's like, oh, yeah, it, she was girlfriend or fiance at the time. So they go, oh, yeah, you know, my husband has one of those. And he was, oh, yeah, it's great. And like it had problems. And so right. she's like, yeah, do your windows not roll up some of the time? Well, yes, but you know you can just you can just fix that manually. Yeah, like, yeah, stick just, your just, hand on it. And go, does your blower work? motor not work sometimes? Oh, yes, that's also a common problem. But he loved his Saab. Here's why: because the Saab was a car that identified who you were. Right. It was an individualization on wheels, and True. that is exactly what why the people Tesla like is. the Tesla. That's a good point. You should not be surprised that a narcissist that is virtue signaling loves the tool that allows him to do it regardless of whether or not it's a piece of crap. Well, you had that ready to go. I did. And when you're in a cult, you blindly martyr yourself. <laughs> it's what you do. Is that quote Christopher Cluel? That is me. And okay. it's 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 to me it's no different than a cult. You're signing up for a Tesla. You love mm -hmm. the leader. You love the, the basically the religion <laughs> of it. Yeah, you're right, I guess. It, it's what All what I hear your car your your car sucks. It's not convenient. I mean, as, as convenient as electric cars are, they're not as convenient as a combustion car. So you're making a sacrifice there. They're not reliable. Consumer Reports says do not buy. So what do you do? You you praise Elon and buy it anyway because you have bought into his vision. And I understand why people do it. Yeah. It's political for them and it's moral for them. 
Right. You know, and it's, I'm sure there's Tesla owners that don't feel like they're taking the moral high ground, but I think a lot of them do. They're like, hey, I'm going to sacrifice that may the not convenience be and, and the rely- initial reason. Yeah, it is. In the back of their mind, everybody that buys a Tesla walks in and goes, you know what? I'm going to save the world. Or they're a nerd. Those Everyone are the can two. tell Chris how he's wrong at overcrestpodcast at gmail.com. You are a nerd <laughs> or you are a fanatic. Those are the two people that buy Teslas. Okay. Anyway, um, stop rewarding Tesla for creating garbage. Please stop buying their cars until they produce a product that can actually be recommended by Consumer Reports. Like their batteries. There's other companies <laughs> buying their batteries. Yeah. Um, so I was going to get into this other story. Do you like it? You want to talk about Rivian I, I, a little we'll bit? We'll just mention it. Interesting. So Rivian was the electric truck manufacturer right. that made waves this last year at the, was it, it was one of the auto shows or yeah. consumer electronics the Detroit show. auto show. Detroit, you're right. And I love them. They're it's, really cool. They're really cool. They're beautiful. They're $65,000, dollars Yep. And t- tons of range. But here was my first thought as soon as Amazon decided to invest $700 million. I'm like, wow. I was like, can I just... Amazon Prime a Rivian to my house? Heck yeah, why wouldn't you? <laughs> so why do you think Amazon invested $700 million in Rivian? I have no theories on it. I have no idea. This is going to be really bad for FedEx and UPS. This, My thought is that this is probably to develop vans for the last few miles of delivery because this d- delivery is the highest cost for Amazon. Good point. So if they, so they're going to have a fleet of their own there's already Amazon little, Rivians. You've seen them, right? The little Amazon trucks that are driving around. Sure, yeah, like the Ford Transit Connects yep. and everything else. They say, yeah, Prime right on them. Yep. That's a good, yeah, good theory. Yep. That makes so, sense. Uh, um, do you think people are buying Tesla because it's American made? Are we, are we going back to Tesla? No, now? I'm just, I'm wondering. Do you think, because, you know, the Rivian is, it's an American made right. trucks. Do you think people I, buy Tesla because it's American made? I won't go into that, but I will say that Rivian will check all the same boxes as Tesla does. I think they will do a better job. Yeah. Um, they're also looking to get more investors. So this isn't like they were bought by Amazon. Right. It was just like Didn't a huge Ford injection. actually invest in them as well? No. Uh, GM is thinking about it. Okay. But they shouldn't, I don't think. Why? Because they've got, they just closed like a few plants, didn't they? <laughs> Didn't they just like cl- like fire a bunch <laughs> they of gotta people? They got to invest in something then. Gonna, then. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Um, anyway, I would, I like the truck. I like the I like Maybe the they'll bring back the Hummer brand as an electric Rivian. Yeah, so it can be a fake electric truck. Yeah, I, there we I, go. I like that. Um, <laughs> on that note, that's all we have for you guys today. We've got a couple cool guests coming up in the next several weeks, so I hope you turn in for those episodes. We've also got an intern that's going to be, a, he's here. He's actually here today, um, Xavier. We're going to call him uh, like Producer X or Mr. X or intern something like X. that. He's actually going to handle some of the production of the show. As if you watch this live, you notice that I'm like doing things and not really paying attention to Jake as much as I should when he's doing the history episodes. We're I'm gonna, a narcissist, so I get really upset by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're basically a, a sob wearing <laughs> pants is what you are. Um, so we're going to have him. He's going to help us out a little bit. Absolutely. Uh, so on that note, we appreciate you guys tuning in. Share, spread the word as always. Leave us a five-star iTunes review with some words if you could yep. we've been getting some of those coming in it's been great um yeah we really appreciate you guys listening and, and be uh, sure to check out our new sponsor redline yeah go check them out uh what was the uh overcrest 2 use overcrest 2 use. all right take care guys we'll talk to you soon <laughs>